Chapter 19 of The Dragon's Secret. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dragon's Secret by Augusta Hule Seaman. Chapter 19 The Biggest Surprise of All. Phyllis, I've got a nibble. Phyllis, I believe I can land him, too, and it will be the first I've really managed to catch. Leslie began to play her line, her hands fairly trembling with excitement. The two girls and Ted stood at the ocean's edge, almost directly in front of the bungalows, whiling away a glorious, crisp afternoon in striving to induce the reluctant fish to bite. For some reason or other they seemed remarkably shy that day. Leslie's nibble had been the first suggestion of possible luck. Just as she was cautiously beginning to reel in her line, a pair of hands were clasped over her eyes, and a gay voice laughed, "'Guess who?' "'Eileen!' cried Leslie joyfully, forgetting all about her nibble. "'Oh, but it's good to see you. We've missed you so since you left. Where did you come from?' "'Grandfather and I motored down to-day,' replied Eileen, as they all crowded round her, "'to stay overnight at Aunt Sally's in the village. He's going to drive out here a little later, with Geoffrey at the wheel, because he wants to see you people. You know, we sail for England on Saturday, and he says he doesn't intend to leave before he has a chance to greet the friends who did so much for him.' "'You've no idea how much better he is. "'He began to pick up the moment I told him the news that night, "'and in the two weeks since he's been like another person. "'But he hates it in New York, and it doesn't agree with him, "'and he just wanted to come down here once more before we left.' "'But how did you get here if he's coming later in the car?' demanded Phyllis. "'Oh, I walked, of course. It was a glorious day for it. "'Aunt Sally wondered so to see me taking the air in anything but that car. "'What a dear she is!' and how scandalously i had to treat her when i stayed there before but the dear lady never suspected that i was in an agony of worry and suspense all the time and didn't dare to be nice to her for fear i'd just be tempted to give way and tell the whole secret i used to long to throw myself in her lap and boo-hoo on her shoulder i've made it all up with her since though there's grandfather now come up to the veranda all of you because he's not strong enough yet to walk on the sand they hurried up to the house and got there in time for eileen to make the introductions. They were all deeply attracted to the tall, stooping, gray-haired, pleasant-mannered gentleman who greeted them so cordially, as if they were old and valued friends, instead of such recent acquaintances. "'I'm going to ask you to let me sit a while on your front veranda,' he said. "'I want to get a last impression of this lovely spot, to carry away with me to England. Also, I would like to have a chat with you young folks, and tell you how much I appreciate what you all did for us.' Rather embarrassed by his suggestion that there was anything to thank them for, Leslie led him through the house to the veranda facing the ocean. Here Aunt Marcia sat, wrapped to the eyes, enjoying the late October sunshine, the invigorating salt air, and the indescribable beauty of the changeful ocean. Leslie had long since, very cautiously and gradually, revealed to her the story of their adventure at Curlew's Nest. So carefully had she done so, that any possible alarm Miss Marcia might have experienced was swallowed up in wonder at the marvellous way in which it had all turned out. Leslie now introduced Mr. Ramsay, and they all gathered around him as he settled himself to enjoy the view. He chatted a while with Miss Marcia, compared notes with her on the effect of the climate on her health and his own, then turned to the young folks. "'It is quite useless for me,' he began, "'to try to express my appreciation of all you people have done for Eileen and myself in the little matter of the bronze box.' "'But we must tell you,' interrupted phyllis eagerly that we aren't going to sail under any false colors we found that little box or rather rags here found it 
and we didn't have a notion, of course, to whom it could belong, and we were just wild to get it open and see what was in it. When we couldn't manage that, we hid it away in the safest place we could think of, to wait for what would happen. I'm afraid we didn't make any very desperate hunt for the owner, and when we suspected that Eileen might have something to do with it, I'm ashamed to say that we wouldn't give it up to her, at first, because we were annoyed at the way she acted. We didn't understand, of course, but that doesn't excuse it. All of what you say may be true, smiled Mr. Ramsay, but that does not alter the fact that you delivered it up the moment you discovered the rightful owner. And Miss Phyllis's clever little ruse of burying the false box probably saved Geoffrey a bad time, for if those fellows hadn't found something there that night, they would certainly have made it hot for him. As it was, it gained us so much time that Detective Barnes had a chance to get my man out of their clutches before they had done him any damage, though they were furious at being duped. They're all safely in jail now, and there's nothing more to fear from them. Of course, the principal who hired them is safe over in China, but he didn't gain his point, and that's the main thing. As for the letters, I concluded that, after all, my ideas as to how to keep them safely were out of date, and they have long since been forwarded to Washington in care of Barnes, and are now in the hands of my country's representative there. I shall not concern myself any further about their security. He put his hands in his pocket and drew out the little bronze casket. Then he went on. This little box has had some strange adventures in its day, but nothing stranger than the one it has just passed through. It has, however, something else in it that I thought might be of interest to you, and so I have brought it along and will explain about it. He opened the box in the same way as Eileen had done, and revealed to their curious gaze the fragile old bits of paper they had seen on that eventful night. He took them out, fingered them thoughtfully, and handed one to each of the four young folks. "'There is a strange little adventure connected with these, that perhaps you may be interested to hear,' he continued. "'It happened when I was passing through the city of Peking, some years ago, during their revolution. There was a good deal of lawlessness rife at that time, and bands of natives were running about, pillaging and looting anything they thought it safe to tamper with. One day, in one of the open places of the city, I happened along just in time to see ten or a dozen lawless natives pulling from its pedestal a great bronze idol, hideous as they make em, that had stood there probably for uncounted centuries. When they got it to the ground, they found it to be hollow inside, as most of the really ancient ones are, and filled with all manner of articles representing the sacrifices that had been made to it through the ages, and placed inside it by their priests. These articles included everything from real jewels of undoubted value to papier-mâché imitations of food, a device the Chinese often use in sacrificing to the idols. Of course, the mob made an immediate grab for the jewels, but it had begun to make my blood boil to see them making off with so much unlawful booty. So, almost without thinking, I snatched out my revolver, placed myself in front of the pile, and shouted to them that I would shoot the first one who laid a finger on the stuff. And in the same breath I sent Geoffrey, hurrying to find some of the city authorities, to come and rescue what would probably be some thousands of dollars' worth of gems. Fortunately, I was armed with an effective weapon, and they were not. So I managed to hold the fort, till Geoffrey returned with the authorities, and on seeing them, the mob promptly melted away. The Mandarin wanted to present me with some of the jewels, in gratitude for my services, but I had no wish for them, and only asked permission to take with me a few of these little scraps of paper, which had been among the medley of articles in the idol's interior. Of course they assented, deeming me no doubt, 
a very stupid foreign devil, to be so easily satisfied. I have carried them with me for several years, and now I am going to give them to you young folks, one to each of you, as a little token of my gratitude for your invaluable help. He sat back in his chair, smiling benignly, while he watched the bewilderment on all their faces. Ted, Phyllis, and Leslie were striving to hide this, under a polite assumption of intense gratitude, though they were a bit puzzled as to why he should choose them, of all people, who had no very great interest in such things, as recipients of this special gift. But his own granddaughter was under less compulsion to assume what she did not feel. "'This is awfully good of you, Granddaddy,' she cried. "'But I don't honestly see what the big deal is. I think that story of yours was ripping. But I don't exactly know what to do with this little bit of paper. It seems so old and frail, too, that I'm almost afraid a breath will blow it to pieces.' I really think it will be safer in your care. He was still smiling indulgently. I suspected that the outspoken Eileen would voice the general opinion of this gift. I don't mind it in the least, and I don't blame you a bit for feeling a trifle bewildered about the matter. But I haven't told you the whole story yet. To continue, as I said before, I carried these bits of paper around with me for a number of years, simply because they reminded me of my little adventure. Then, one day early this past summer, on the steamer coming across the Pacific, I chanced to meet a man connected with the British Museum, whom I soon discovered to be one of the principal experts on Chinese antiquities. And it occurred to me to show him these bits of paper, and ask if he could imagine what they were. He examined them carefully, then came to me in great delight, declaring that they certainly were, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the oldest existing specimens of Chinese paper money." and he added, moreover, that the British Museum had no specimens in its possession as old as these, and declared that he believed the museum would be delighted to buy them, probably for three or four hundred pounds apiece. The listening four gasped and stared at him incredulously, but he went on undisturbed. I said I would think the matter over and decide when I reached England, but meantime, for reasons which I have already enlarged upon, I have decided instead to give them to you, as a little testimony of my deep gratitude, if by any chance you should decide that you would prefer to have the money, I will attempt to negotiate the sale for you when I reach London and— He got no further, for with a whoop of joy, Ted sprang forward and laid his bit in Mr. Ramsay's lap, and the others followed his example, striving very inadequately to express their wonder and delight. But he interrupted them smilingly. I should like to inquire, just as a matter of curiosity, what form of investment each one of you expects to make with the sum you receive. Don't think me too inquisitive, please. It's just an old man's curiosity. I've decided already, cried Eileen. I'm going to spend mine on another trip over here in the spring to visit you girls, and I'm going to bring Mother with me. I wouldn't have got here this time if it hadn't been for Grandfather, for Daddy simply put his foot down and said he couldn't afford it and next year Grandfather may be in Timbuktu or somewhere like it, and I wouldn't have a chance. But I've just got to see you all again soon, for you're the best friends I ever made. And I'm going to save mine for some extra expense courses in chemical engineering in college that I never supposed I could afford to take, declared Ted. I expected I'd have to go into business after I graduated, for a year or two, till I scraped up enough, but now I can go right on. "'Of course I'll get my music now,' cried Phyllis, "'and I'm the happiest girl alive.' "'Well, it's hardly necessary for me to say "'that now little Ralph will have his chance to be strong and well, "'like other boys,' murmured Leslie, "'tears of joy standing in her eyes. 
Then, to ease the tension of the almost too happy strain, Mr. Ramsay continued, "'But there is another member of this party that it would not do to forget.' He drew from his pocket a handsome leather and silver dog-collar, called Rags over to him, and as the dog ambled up, gravely addressed him. "'Kindly accept this token of my immense gratitude, and allow me to clasp it about your neck.' Rags submitted gravely, while his old collar was removed, and the new one put in place, and immediately after began to make frantic efforts to get it off over his head. But Mr. Ramsay only laughed, and held up a five-dollar bill, adding, "'I realize that you do not entirely appreciate this gift at present. In fact, I sympathize with you, in thinking it a decided nuisance. But here is something else that may soothe your sorrow, a five-dollar bill, to be devoted exclusively to the purchase of luscious steaks, tender chops, and juicy bones, for your solitary delectation.' Amid the general laughter that followed, he added, "'And now, may I ask that you escort me over to the veranda of Curlew's Nest? I have a great desire to walk up and down on that porch for a few moments, and think of all the strange adventures of which that delightful little bungalow has been the scene.' And accompanied by Rags, still striving madly to scrape off his new collar by rubbing it in the sand, they escorted their guests to Curlew's Nest. End of chapter 19 End of The Dragon's Secret by Augusta Hule Seaman.